We're back in Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 17 this morning. I, I consider this to be somewhat of a, a difficult text for us. Matthew 13 begins a new section, and, and this is the third discourse, or the third message from our Lord, the third speech from, from Jesus in this gospel. And remember, Matthew kind of switches back and forth between discourse and narrative, and he does that five times in this gospel. Each time Matthew begins a, a narrative section with, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so there's these five discourses, and then that it ends with Jesus had finished these sayings or finished these parables, and then it goes into a narrative. But this discourse is slightly different than the others, probably for two reasons. First of all, it's entirely made up of parables, which are really quite different from everything that we've seen from the Lord Jesus to this point. And second, this discourse is broken up by questions and explanations where the other discourses are are uninterrupted messages from Jesus. But this discourse had to be interrupted because Jesus spoke these parables to the crowds, but he later explained the parables to the disciples. And Matthew wanted us to have the, the parables and their explanations. And so let's begin. Let's read our text for this morning. Matthew 13. Again, we're going to look at verses 1 to 17. At that, t- at that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got in, into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. He who has ears to he, he, he who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. I called this sermon just simply Introduction to the Parables, and, and that's really what our text does. It introduces us to this new method of teaching that Jesus began on that same day. And I'm, I'm not even sure, as we kind of go through this, we'll see, there, there might be a point, but I'm not even really sure if I'm going to be able to call this a sermon today. My, my goal is just simply to introduce this section, cover these verses, and, and introduce the parables in general. But before this day, Jesus had used, uh, maybe we could say a few parable-like illustrations, but he, he hadn't taught in parables. And this is the first time that Matthew uses this word, parable, in the gospel. And so something new is happening here in the ministry of our Lord, and we're going to look at it today under three headings. We're going to see, first of all, the place, and under this heading we'll We'll look at the verses 1 to 3 right up until Jesus begins to speak at the end of verse 3. And, and, and our aim is just to kind of place this whole scene 
in its historical context, I think it's really important for us to understand what's happening on that same day, what's, what, the, what the context is of, of this new style of teaching. And then secondly, we're going to look at the parable in verses, the, the last part of verse 3 to verse 9. And uh, this parable is the parable that Jesus gave to the crowd. And this is the first, at least of this kind, in Matthew. And we won't jump ahead. We're not going to look at verses 18 um, and, and following where Jesus explains the parable. We're going to resist the temptation to do that. And next week when we come back, we'll, we'll begin to look at the parable and the actual interpretation and explanation of the parable of the sower. But this week we're going to avoid that temptation and we're just going to try to see it from the crowd's perspective. The crowd didn't hear the explanation that Jesus gave and, and we won't do that either today. And then thirdly, we're going to see the purpose in verses 10 to 17, we're going to call it the purpose, which is going to answer the question of verse 10, when the disciples come to Jesus and say, why do you speak to them in parables? And so we're going to try to answer the question, why parables? And, and, and what's up with this new style of teaching that the Lord has? And, and we're going to see a twofold purpose as we look at the purpose. We're going to see, first of all, a purpose to reveal truth to the disciples. And that truth is truth about the kingdom of heaven, the mysteries of the kingdom. The ESV translates it there, the secrets of the kingdom. And then second purpose, we're going to see that the, the purpose is also to conceal these same truths from the crowds. It wasn't given them to know the things, and so Jesus is going to teach in parables so that they will never understand Verse 14, never perceive, and ultimately they won't repent, they won't turn and be healed. And so let's begin then with number one, the place, verses one to three. Again, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying... And we'll stop there. Now we need to begin by, again by remembering that, that this happened on that same day in verse 1. And that was the same day, if you turn back to Matthew 12, verse 22, this was the same day that a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Verse 23, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Jesus called this the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees saw the Lord Jesus do the very works that proved that he was the Messiah, but they attributed it to the devil. And Jesus answered their charge and warned them of coming judgment. And then in verse 30, verse 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And the sign of the prophet Jonah, as we saw quite a while ago now already, was a, a, a veiled prophecy of the resurrection. And then Jesus condemned that generation with the following words, starting in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In verse 45, Jesus told them that the final state of the generation would be worse and the, the idea there seems to be that, that Jesus' ministry only prepared the way for a worse judgment on that generation of Israel. Just like having one demon cast out, it's actually worse for a person if seven demons who are more evil than it take its place. In the same way, it's going to be worse for this generation of Israel. In the end, for that generation, they would, they would be worse off because of their rejection of the Messiah. And it's really quite a, a thing to think about that God the Son came to these people and he showed himself to be their Messiah and he did all of the miracles that he did, but they rejected him. 
And so it would be better for them if he had not come. And so it's really quite an amazing thing to think about. It would have been better for that generation if the Lord Jesus hadn't come. Look at verse 46. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And then in verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, or is my brother and sister and mother. And so here we see that Jesus' disciples are his true family. And we have this picture of those who are inside, and then there's those who are outside. And I think that's a deliberate picture that Matthew gives us. And so there's these insiders, his disciples, there's these outsiders, even some of Jesus' own family. And on that same day, that day that, that he was rejected by the Pharisees, the day that he was rejected by the leaders, on that same day, he went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. And of course, sitting is kind of the, the, the normal position of the rabbi by the sea. He's going to sit down and teach them. And again, this is the same day that the leaders rejected him. And these verses that we just read in chapter 12 were the conclusion of that larger section that began in chapter 11, which showed that, that really everyone was rejecting Jesus. John the Baptist doubted. Remember, the cities refused to repent. The Pharisees began to plot to kill him. And so chapters, in 11, chapters 11 and 12 focused on the rejection of the king. And on that day, everything began to change in our Lord's ministry, including this new practice of teaching the crowds in parables. Now, there are still many people who were interested in the ministry of the Lord, and they were maybe just even curious about him. And so there was great crowds that gathered about him in verse 2. And in verse 1, Jesus went out of the house, and he sat beside the sea. And again, this is the traditional posture of a teaching rabbi. The the rabbi, the teacher, is going to sit, and the rest of the, the people would stand around and listen. And so Jesus sat, but then the, the crowds were so great that, that another method, method was needed. And so um, in verse 2, great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And so Jesus is going to be in the boat and now the whole crowd can see him. And of course, the sound's going to echo off the water and it's going to maybe help the acoustics a little bit. Now, it could be as Jesus is on this boat that the disciples were also with him in the boat. You know, if you, if you look over at verse 10, it's the disciples are going to come to him and say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And then in verse 34, it says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, and indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. And then in verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the fields. And so the the crowds got the parables, but the disciples got the parables with the explanations of them. And whether they got that explanation in the boat, whether they were in the boat at this moment, or if it was later in the house, it really makes no difference. But the crowd gets parables, and the disciples get the parables as well as their explanations. And so Jesus is in the boat, and, and could be that some of the disciples are also with him. Maybe not. We don't know for sure. But Jesus is in the boat. The crowd is standing on the beach, and this is the same day as his rejection by the leaders, and so now he's going to teach in parables. And so verse 3 says, and he told them many things in parables, saying. Well, the Greek word for parable is parabole, and it's, uh, it's used to translate a Hebrew word that's, that's no, mashal is the Hebrew word. And a mashal was used for a riddle or a maxim or a saying or a proverb or an allegory or a comparison or a taunt. Lots of, lots of different uses of this word mashal. But most often in the New Testament, parables are in the form of a narrative. And, and they're, they're narrative comparisons. They're short of, uh, they're, they're short stories that compare one thing to another. And the word itself is, is made up of two different words. There's, there's the word para there, which means beside. And then there, there's a, a bale. A bale is a throw. And so we get the idea from that that this is a, a throw beside. 
And that's what we really see in a parable. One thing is, is kind of thrown alongside another to make a comparison. And so there's going to be a, a comparison that happens. And typically this comparison takes something that's known to the audience to teach something that's not known. So something known is compared with something that's unknown. Something from the, the natural world is compared to something maybe from the spiritual world. And so the parable is going to begin with something like sowing seed or something like, like fishing or something like work relations and labor and payments and, or just really anything from the natural world. And these true to life elements that the audience already knows and, and already understands are going to be used to teach something that they don't know or understand. And, and again, that is spiritual truth. And that teaching is done by way of comparison. Uh, when John MacArthur explained parables, he, he talked about a parabolic curve. Uh, and, and I, you know, I don't know how many of you are, remember your algebra or whatever, but a parabolic curve is when there's kind of one curve like this, but then there's also a mirror curve that's kind of graphed out like that. And so the two kind of end up mirroring each other. And so if you think about the bottom parabolic curve, that would be the, maybe the earthly element, the things from the natural world, things like farming and fishing and things that, that the people understood. But that was used then to compare what's going on in the spiritual world, in the heavenly realm. And so the one kind of mirrors the other. The earthly truth is parallel somehow to spiritual realities. Now, when I was in seminary, I I took a class on parables and I had to memorize a definition that's really stuck with me all of these years. Uh, And, and I think it's helpful, but it's, it's, it's going to take a little bit of thinking. It's going to take a little bit of, of kind of going through. So I'll, I'll try to go slow here for you. But a parable is a figurative narrative, true to life, designed for the pedagogical purpose of conveying a specific spiritual truth relative to the kingdom program of God. Did you guys get that? Matthew's laughing. Not at all. Okay. I was thinking about even putting it in your notes for you. But let's just talk about this, a figurative narrative true to life. So it's figurative, it it pictures something else, right? It's a figure, one thing figures another. It's a narrative, that means it's a story. So it's a, a story that pictures something else. And it's true to life, it's from the natural world, it's from the everyday elements of of the world that we know. Pedagogical, which I can hardly even say, is a, a fancy word that means we're we're teaching something. And we're teaching something about the kingdom program of God. And we're going to have to almost maybe do some an aside where we talk about the kingdom of God. Um, all of these parables in Matthew 13 are about the kingdom of God. And, and they really all begin with something like, um, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so they're, they're about the kingdom program of God, but they, they speak about a specific truth, a specific spiritual truth that's kind of related to the kingdom of God. And so one of the things that we want to be careful about when we interpret parables is they're, they're really not meant to communicate multiple truths. They're not allegories where every single thing in the, in the narrative relates to something else. Typically there's, there's one main truth or in the case of the parable of the soils, there's going to be kind of four truths that we see, one for each soil. But if we kind of go too far beyond that, we're, we're going to miss the point. And so parables speak about a specific truth, and we really want to find the one main truth that that parable teaches. And, and we'll sh- I'll show you that as we go through and start interpreting these. Um, so a figurative narrative, true to life, designed for the purpose of teaching a specific spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. And again, these verses, these parables in Matthew 13 all speak about the kingdom of God. And so if you look at verse 11, he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then if you go to verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, that's the interpretation of the parable of the soils. It's about the the word of the kingdom. If you look at verse 24, he put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man. Or in verse 31, he put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. And verse 33 again, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid. In verse 43, it says there, 
the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that's in the parable of the weeds of the field. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. In verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And then in verse 51, it says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And I think that's important for us to recognize that the disciples, after they've been explained, Jesus asked them, have you understood all these things? And they say, yes, we have. And I think Matthew also wants us to be able to understand all these things. And he says to them then in verse 52, and he said to them, every, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so we're going to talk more about interpreting parables, and we're going to talk about the kingdom at another point, but that kind of sets the, the place for what we're, what we're talking about now. And we're going to have, you know, some people say there's seven parables, some people say there's eight parables here, but we're going to look at all of these over the next probably number of months. But let's look at the parable itself now in verse 13, the second part, all the way to verse 9. And this is what the crowd heard that day, that day that Jesus was rejected. And and this is all that they heard. They heard these seven or eight parables, but again, they did not hear the explanations. And this first parable we call the parable of the sower because that's what Jesus called it in verse 18 when he says, hear then the parable of the sower. And then he explains it, but but let's hear again what the crowd heard starting in the second part of verse 3. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. And that's all the crowd got that day. Now, we need to recognize just how different this is from the Lord's previous teaching. You know, if you compare this to the Sermon on the Mount, that was also given to the crowds. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught clearly and directly. And it's a sermon about the the kind of person who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there, there may be in that sermon an interpretive challenge here or there, but, but it's really a straightforward, practical sermon that anyone can understand, and no additional explanation is necessary. But with this parable, we really have no way to know what Jesus is talking about without some additional information, without some additional help. If you turn, I want you to turn actually to the, the parallel in Mark chapter 4. Let's go over there. This, this is in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark 4, Luke 8. Mark chapter 4 and verse 10 says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And then Jesus goes on to explain. And Luke also gives the explanation of the parable. Mark though adds in verse 13, he says, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? And so what we can see from this is that the the disciples didn't initially understand the parable of the sower. They didn't understand what it was all about. And somehow this the understanding of this parable is like a, a bit of a key to understand all the parables. And so did you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, the parables in the New Testament, they, they're included for us to understand. Matthew didn't write these so that we would have no clue what he's talking about. And even when we don't have an interpretation, even when we don't have an explanation, the authors of the Gospels expect us to understand. 
And they're going to include a, usually a brief note or a tie-in into the context in, in some way that's intended to shed light on the meaning of the parables. And there's going to be parables at, at, at other points where, where they're directed to the Pharisees and the Pharisees do understand. But right now we need to understand, we need to see that these parables would have really left the crowd clueless. And even the disciples didn't understand until after Jesus explained. And so let's kind of look at this just kind of line by line. Let's go back to Matthew uh, chapter 13. It says, a sower went out to sow. And a, a sower is just one who sows. And, and typically this would have been wheat or barley. And, and what they would have done is, is they would have had a little bag, a little pouch on the side and, and they would have, they would have had this bag full of seed and they would have put their hand in and they would have kind of just thrown seed by a, a hand scattering kind of method, whether it's out like this or up like this. And so handfuls of seed would have been, would have been thrown on the ground. Now there's a debate among scholars whether they plowed the ground before or whether they plowed the ground after or whether they plowed the ground both times. Sometimes they say they plowed the seed into the soil. Sometimes they say they plowed before. But really, whether it was plowed or not, at some point this seed would have been plowed into the ground where the sower sowed. Verse 4 says, As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. And so there was, there was paths and, and really literally the, the word is roads, but it really would have been like walking trails through the fields. And the, the sower, of course, would, would aim to sow the ground on, in the place where he was going to plow or where it was already plowed. But, but inevitably, if you're just kind of doing this, there's going to be seed that falls along these walking trails that kind of went all throughout the villages and through the fields in the ancient Near East. And, and whatever seed would fall, just like today, when, when it's sowing time, the birds come, they want to eat that seed. When, when, the, when the seed falls on these paths, these kind of hardened paths, the birds are going to come and they're going to eat these seeds. In verse 5 it says, Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now, when we think about this field, maybe you, you think about rocky ground and you think about, you know, fields full of rock, but that's not what it was. Just like today, farmers would, would remove the rocks out of their fields because they know that, that wheat and barley is not going to grow there. And so they would, they would pick rocks just like they did today. But what this is probably talking about was that there was some, some ground in Palestine that was, um, that, that had rock underneath and there was like a limestone layer underneath and there would be a shallow amount of dirt covering that limestone. And so there would have been a, a shallow amount of soil, but underneath was this limestone and, and the, the seed in that position would, would grow up really fast because the sun would warm it and the seeds would germinate faster than other seeds. And so the, the warm sun would cause germination and there'd be moisture in that little layer for a time. And, and so the, the seeds would often grow up really fast. But because there wasn't really very much soil there, there was no, there was no moisture. And so when the, when the sun came out, the, the land there would dry up very quickly. And these, these, these plants that looked really good at first would, would wither away and die. One commentator talked about even, even to this day when the hot sun comes out in an afternoon, he's noticed a flower kind of go from a beautiful flower into a, a shriveled and dead dry plant in just one afternoon because of the, the hot sun in the world there. Well, in Matthew 7 then, or in Matthew 13 verse 7, it says, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. And so here we have other seed in the ground and, 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 and what's going on now is there's seed in the ground that the farmer's not aware of and there's really nothing that he can do to, to get rid of that seed. And, and this is thorn seed, and so he's gonna sow his good seed, but there's already thorns in this ground, and when the thorns grow up, they, they choke the wheat or the barley. And thorns, just like weeds today, they grow up faster, and they take the resources, they take the sun, they take the water, they take the nutrients, and eventually the seed doesn't grow. And we could probably notice maybe a progression so far where the first seeds were eaten before they germinated. 
The second group lasted only a while, and then they shriveled, and then the third group lasted longer. But, but all three of these types of fields, all three of these soils, produce no harvest. And then in verse 8, other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now we can notice maybe something else here. The, the same sower sows the same seed in each case. The difference is the soil where the seeds land. And finally, here we have some good soil. And this is what every farmer would be aiming at, was good soil to produce a harvest. And the good soil is, is, is the first here that we hear of a yield. And this soil is produced grain. But even here, there's a, there's a difference. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, there's a debate on how to understand the increase. Some say that this is a supernatural harvest, and others say that it's a good harvest, but it's within normal range, and we'll, we'll talk about that and land on that next week. But, but at this point, it really makes no difference, does it, what, what's going on here? Because all we have is this story about a farmer and his seed, and some grew and some didn't. Now, verse 9 tells us that whatever this was all about, it's important. He who has ears, let him hear. That's a, a statement about the seriousness of, of how we need to understand what Jesus is talking about. But without some other information, the crowd would, would only be able to guess what Jesus was talking about. And again, in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And that's from Psalm 78, verse 2. Now you, uh, you know, being believers and, and having probably read Matthew, you already know something about this because you've read verse 18 and following, but the crowd got nothing but this story about the sower. You know, just, just imagine... If I came up here today and I just told you a story about a fisherman, a story about a fisherman who caught a fish, but I never related it to anything, I never, I never connected it to anything, what would you do? What would you do if I taught like that week after week, came up here and just told stories and made no connections? You know, some pastors do tell stories. Some pastors, uh, you know, sometimes interesting stories even that are entertaining to listen to, but unless they're teaching truth through the story, it really does no spiritual good. Now we understand we don't, we don't come here for entertainment. We come here to hear from God through His Word. But Jesus is actually holding the truth from these people. He's hiding it. He's, He's veiling it from them because they have rejected Him. And so that's the parable, and, and really, without some kind of a key, there's, there's no way to understand what Jesus is talking about. You could really only guess. And so now the disciples are curious about this, and they're going to ask him about it in verse 10, and, and this is going to be number three in our outline. We're going to call it the purpose in verses 10 to 17. The purpose of parables. What's the purpose? What, what, what's this new teaching style all about? And again, that's what the disciples ask in verse 10, and Jesus is going to give them a twofold answer. He answers in relation to the disciples, the insiders, and then he answers in relation to the outsiders, the crowd. And so in verse 10, the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To the one it has been given, to the other it has not been given. One group will be allowed to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the other will not. Verse 12 goes further, one group, the disciples, are going to be given more to the point of abundance, and the other group, the crowds, are going to lose even what they have. For to the one who has, verse 12, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now when these verses speak about what's been given or what has not been given, they're, they're speaking about revelation. They're speaking about understanding of God's word. And in the case of these parables, the crowd is not given the privilege of knowing about the kingdom of heaven But it goes even beyond that because already they have seen and heard about Jesus, but they've rejected him. 
And these verbs are in the passive, has been given or has not been given. These are what we call divine passives. God is the one who gives or does not give this revelation and understanding. God is the one who opens eyes and unblocks ears and softens hearts. He's also the one who shuts eyes, closes ears, and hardens hearts. And this section speaks of God's prerogative to either give or withhold information and insight into himself and into his ways. It also at the same time shows man's responsibility to see and hear. And so there's, there's kind of both things happening here. Israel is being prevented from having further revelation about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom program of God, because they would not and they did not recognize the king of that kingdom. And because they didn't recognize him as their Messiah, because they did not repent, they're going to be prevented from having further revelation. And so we have here God's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side, as we often do in Scripture. Just right side by side. And, and we've already seen this already in, in earlier parts here. I want you to just turn back with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 and verse 20. <clears throat> Jesus is going to speak here and it says there, Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And in verse 25, Jesus declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. But then continuing on right from there, verse 28, Jesus then says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, these verses again show... God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God was the one who had hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. But Jesus denounces these cities that didn't repent because they were worthy of greater judgment for their refusal. And so again, we have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility side by side all through Matthew chapter 11 and again in our text in Matthew 13. D.A. Carson commenting on this said at one point, in short, the biblical writers were compatibilists. God is sovereign, man is responsible, and those things go together. Now, maybe we can't quite explain how they go together, but they're not a contradiction because we know that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. And we can actually kind of even dig into it deeper and explain it more and, and kind of understand in greater depth how these things are compatible, but I'm not going to do that today. See, the disciples had come to recognize the Son by divine grace. It was the Father's gracious will to reveal these things to the children, to the disciples. But however the disciples came to this view from God's grace, the rest of the crowds, the, the rest of the cities, the rest of Israel did not repent. And they were responsible for not recognizing Jesus, and they would be judged more severely in hell for their failure to repent. And so in an act of judgment, they are cut off now from further revelation, and Jesus begins to teach in parables. And so if you look back at our text, chapter 13, verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so the parables are a judgment on these people who saw and heard Jesus, but at the same time never truly saw and heard him. They did not understand, it says there. They did not understand. They do not understand, nor do they understand. This is the same word we saw in Ephesians 5 last week, in Ephesians 5.17, where it said, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And remember that word there meant uh, an intelligent grasp of something that changes one's thinking or practice. And so they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't turn from their sin. And now because of that, they, would, they wouldn't have the same opportunity anymore to hear and see. Now in verses 14 and 15, Jesus compares what was happening in his day with what Isaiah had happened in his day. And Jesus says in Matthew 13, 14, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and then he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And I want you to just turn there with me. This is the section where This is the section where um, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah was commissioned there in, in that vision to go for the Lord and, and preach to Israel. And I want to read this whole extended section starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their ears, lest they see with their eyes and hear. I said, blind their ears. Make the heart of this people dull, verse 10, And their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a tree brinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so Isaiah was to go and preach God's word to the people, but they would reject it. And they would not understand and not perceive and not see and not hear and not turn and not be healed. And this was to go on until the the people, the the nation of Judah, was handed over to Babylon and taken into captivity until the judgment of God came on them fully for their sin. Now when verse 10 says, make the heart of this people dull and and make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, we we understand this, that, that Isaiah, he did preach the word of God to the people. But the problem was is that the people were hardened. And as Isaiah goes and preaches to the people, it's only going to show to a greater extent the hardness of heart that these people had. And so they were, they were hardened in heart and they would reject the preaching of Isaiah. And so they were then even hardened further in judgment as a judgment for their hard hearts until eventually they're going to be taken into captivity to Babylon. Now, this was very much like what we see with, with Pharaoh. God hardened his heart to judge Egypt and to glorify himself by delivering Israel out of Egypt. But when we think about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we don't think that God hardened Pharaoh's heart against Pharaoh's will. 
We understand that Pharaoh had a hard heart, that, that God hardened his heart further, that it's not as though Pharaoh was going to immediately repent and trust in Christ and, and, and follow the Lord, except for that the Lord hardened his heart. We understand that these things are compatible, that they go together, that Pharaoh had a hard heart and God hardened it further as an act of judgment. And we know from scripture that really all of us have hard hearts and all of us are dead in trespasses and sins unless God opens our eyes by grace. Now in our text in Matthew 13, and we can go back there, Jesus compares his ministry to Isaiah's. It's a a fulfillment. The same thing is happening again, that just as Isaiah was rejected and his ministry was rejected, so Jesus's ministry was rejected. The same thing is happening again. Judah, Israel, is not receiving the word of God and they're going to be hardened until judgment comes. And part of that is this new teaching in parables so that the people aren't going to understand. And so in verse 14, Jesus says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now we need to kind of think about this now for ourselves. And obviously, Jesus isn't here in the flesh. And we have these parables here for us, but they're they're really for us to understand the, the secrets of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom has been given to us in Matthew so that we can understand. Now, we're not to preach to harden people's hearts. We're, you know, but we, I think we do need to see something here for ourselves. You see, men's hearts are naturally resistant to the truth. And if we think about it, even when Jesus was present in the flesh, Men resisted and suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And if they resisted the Lord, and if they resisted his teaching, and if they resisted Isaiah, then how much more should we expect them to resist us? We should, we should really expect it. Now Jesus, in this case, he switched to parables to not cast his pearls before the pigs, but, but also his purpose, his plan, the the mission that he has is to go to the cross and die for our sins. And so we're not to do something like what Jesus did. We're not to teach in parables. We're not to, to teach in confusing ways that people can't understand. Our job is to continue to uphold the truth, to, to preach the gospel, to build up the saints, and, and we're not to hide anything. What Jesus spoke in the inner ear, we're to preach from the housetops. But I think something that we can note from this is, is, is just this, that it's an act of judgment when God conceals his truth from someone or from some people, from a, a group of people. And when God hands over people to false teaching, to believe the lie or to follow their itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their, their own passions, it's really an act of judgment on a people. Now, as we go through the book of Matthew, even though Jesus is teaching in this, in parables, we're still going to see that people get saved. And as we progress through the book, though, we're going to see that it's mostly Gentiles from here on in. And, and it's going to be rare to see people turn and believe in Christ. There's still the opportunity, but it's going to be even harder now for the people. And so as we think about this again, it's, a, it's an act of judgment when God kind of turns a people away from the truth. And we should pray then as, as, as people that live in this world, as people that are, are at the mercy of a sovereign God, we should pray that God would give us hearts to heed his word and eyes to see and ears to hear. And we should pray that for ourselves and we should pray that for those that we minister to, that God and his mercy would open people's eyes to the truth. Because again, we're not greater than Isaiah and we're not greater than Jesus. In Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And then finally, I think we need to recognize that 
where we're blessed. And we, we see this in verses 17 or 16 and 17. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, if we've been healed, if our sins have been forgiven, then God has broken through our natural hardness and he has been gracious to us and he has opened our eyes and he has brought us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus pronounces us blessed. He said, he turns to the disciples then in verse 16 and he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, all the prophets and righteous people, they, they really long to see the Messiah's day. Isaiah prophesied about it, but, but he never saw it in his life. He never saw it in the way that, that Peter was able to see it. He never saw the Lord on the earth. He saw him in that vision in heaven. And the blessing of verse 17 was, was really for those who saw Jesus in the flesh and, and truly came to believe for those who were there that day. But we should also kind of take this blessing of ourselves and we should be thankful for what we see and hear as well. You see, we have God's revelation. We have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And we have salvation in Christ and we have a biblical church that is, and if we have these things, we have, we have truly been blessed and we should acknowledge it with praise and thankfulness. We should re- recognize the blessing that the Lord has given us. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. And so we should praise the Lord for that. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for the revelation that we have, the Old and New Testament, the Bible that we can stand on, that we can build our lives on. We thank you, Father, for salvation in Christ. We thank you that, that you overcame our hard hearts, that you overcame our, our blindness of eyes, that you even overcame the deadness that we were in and our transgressions and sins and made us alive together with Christ. And we thank you for all of these things. We are grateful for your blessings in our lives. We pray that you'd continue to bless us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. We pray that you would open our eyes to your truth and to your ways and that we would follow you in in God-honoring ways, that we would be led by you and your word. We pray that we'd be a people that know and uphold and preach and teach and disciple and counsel with the truth of God. In short, we pray that we'd be a a biblical, God-glorifying church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.